Good morning, everyone. Welcome once again to another service at Warden Full Gospel Assembly. I hope and trust that every one of you are enjoying the last few days of warm summer days. It is almost getting ready to go into fall, and in the next week or so, students will be going back to school, albeit wearing masks. In case you have noticed, uh, we're in the series, as Pastor Connie mentioned a few moments ago, we're in the series on the book of Acts, and we are today in chapter 9, in a section called The Community. As we have been studying, as you recall, in the book of Acts, Acts is a history of the church in its beginning, in its formation. First in Jerusalem, and then multiplying and exploding with rapid growth throughout the then known world. And the reason why we are studying this and having this expansive study in the books of Acts is we should ultimately be asking ourselves this question. How can we be that kind of church as is displayed in the book of Acts? Or here's another question. How can we be the kind of people that we read about in the book of Acts? Here's what is so interesting, and it's something that we must understand, and we need to understand this. The early church, the church that you read about and study in the book of Acts, the early church was in a setting, in an environment, a dynamic that is very similar to what we are experiencing today. We are in a very similar situation. The church is experiencing those kinds of environments that the early church experienced in the book of Acts. And the church in Acts existed, for example, in a very pluralistic culture. It was an environment that was opposed to the gospel. There There was a societal belief system that was diabolically different from the message of Jesus. And into this kind of environment, the church was birthed. And somehow... The church grew exponentially. Somehow there was a dynamic that took place within the church that infiltrated the then known world. The church didn't grow because all the Christians of that time started having more children and were born into Christian homes. No, no. The church grew because people believed in the message of Jesus. The church grew because people believed differently. They lived differently. Not in a bizarre, weird way, engaging in some kind of ritual protocols. No, they saw something that they were missing in their lives. There were people in that society who never had considered Jesus, yet all of a sudden they became engrossed with the story of Jesus. They believed in the narrative of this rabbi from Nazareth. And these people in that society became authentic followers of Jesus. Or as the book of Acts describes it, they became followers of the way. Now, there is a word that describes what happened in the lives of these people. There is a word that is... is presented in the book of Acts that describes this transition, believing one way and then becoming a person who believes another way. And that word is the word conversion. People were being 
converted. They had a certain mindset that they were living by, and then that mindset changed when they encountered the message of Jesus, and they began to believe and live a different way. That's the word conversion. People were being converted. People believed certain things. They had certain values. They had certain ideas about how life works or supposedly works. And suddenly, in their lives, there was the, a shift that transpired. There was a, a shift where they began to believe other things. They began to understand life through a different lens. They, had a, they began to have a different perspective. They began to develop different values in their life. And that's what's so interesting about this word, conversion. And for whatever reasons, today, these days in which we are living in, that word makes people uncomfortable. The word conversion today makes people uncomfortable. There are people today who think that calling people toward conversion is primitive or narrow-minded. Some people even believe that to ask for somebody to engage in conversion is wrong. That it's somehow disrespectful towards a person to indicate to a person that their life could shift and could change into a new way. This is what some people think. They even ask questions like, do we need to talk about life like that? Do we need to use this kind of language in today's culture where we're much more sophisticated and we're much more educated to, and to understand things differently? Do we have to use the word conversion? Even people in the church, people ask on a personal level, is the word conversion the word that I should use to describe a changing experience? Now, if you put those questions and test the Bible with those questions and ask, what does the Bible say about this? The, the Bible has a resounding yes. That's the word we use, conversion. It's the best way to describe the changing belief structure in a person's life is that word conversion. This is how Jesus describes it. Look at Matthew chapter 18, verse 3. These are the words of Jesus. I tell you the truth, unless you turn from your sins and become like little children, you will never get into the kingdom of God. Then Jesus says this in John chapter 3, verse 3. I tell you the truth, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Two different statements from two different uh, portions of scripture, Jesus is saying the same thing. There is a change. There is a shifting. There is a transition that takes place in a person's life. And according to Jesus, there is this critical part that if you want to follow Jesus, if you want to follow him, there has to be a change that takes place in your life. But here's what, where it becomes fascinating and interesting. Because when you read the scriptures, and when you read the stories in the Bible of conversion, they are incredibly diverse. Some conversion stories in the scriptures are very dramatic and visible. 
Yet some others are very quiet and behind the scenes. Some conversion in the scripture happens suddenly. And there are some conversion events that are more prolonged. They take a longer process of time. The point I am making this morning, church, is this. That conversion is real. But at the same time, it's very different for every individual. What this means for us is that we need to be very careful not to prescribe what conversion is and what it looks like in every person's life. We have to be very careful not to develop a pattern or demand that every single person experiences conversion in the same way. That there has to be a certain number of steps that have to be followed in order for the conversion experience to be real. Or that there are certain patterns that have to evolve in a person's life in order for conversion to take place. In other words, we cannot expect conversion to be the same for everyone. Now your conversion experience might change things in your life in a certain way. Whereas in my life, conversion might take months and years to change and shift as that happens in my life. In other words, listen, we cannot formulate or put a pattern to conversion. But at the same time, we can't deny the reality of the conversion experience. And the conversion story that we read just a few moments ago in Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 9 is one of the most significant stories in the Bible. It's an iconic story. The, The conversion of Saul to Paul. The conversion of a man named Saul who became Paul. And what I want you to notice today is the process that Saul moves through that is so consistent with what conversion is in the Bible and throughout Christian history. There are essential elements, there are ingredients, if you will, that can be transferred from Saul's experience to anyone who has shifted and and experienced this new understanding, this conversion, this shifting of living a certain way, shifting their ideas to become a follower of Jesus. You may say, as we study this experience today, well, I see... I see parallels in my own life where you say, man, I moved through a similar process in my life. I had a dynamic encounter with God. Or some people may even say today, I'm in the middle of this. What you're talking about, Pastor, I'm experiencing right now. In the middle of my life, in this moment, I'm experiencing something similar where this encounter with God is changing my life. And others of you may want to re- reevaluate your life as to whether or not you fully leaned into the deeper meaning of what conversion has meant in your own personal life. Even though it's happened in the past, maybe today you will experience a new perspective of that incredible event even in your life. In any case, this story in Acts chapter 9 has incredible and remarkable relevance to your story and my story. There is a remarkable relevance to our story. So before we get into chapter 9 of Acts... There's a sequence of events that we have to think about and talk about that led us up to this moment. 
You recall in chapter 7, there was a man named Stephen who was killed outside the city of Jerusalem. And while he was being killed, this individual, Saul, was overseeing his murder. He, did, he was not a direct participant, but he was standing alongside and encouraging followers to execute Stephen. Saul was also part of the persecution of the church that was causing this great upheaval and this disbursement of the church into places like Samaria and Ethiopia. And yet while this persecution was intensifying and more and more people, as it was intensifying, the persecution was intensifying, there were more and more people who were becoming followers of Jesus and becoming a part of the community. And the church was growing even in the midst of this horrific persecution. Then we come to Acts chapter 9, and that represents a dramatic shift in the book of Acts. Notice what it says in Acts chapter 9, verse 3 and verse 4. As he, that's referring to Saul, was approaching Damascus on this mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him. And he fell to the ground, and he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Verse 5 and verse 6, as the story continues. Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. And the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And in these verses, we discover the first element of true conversion. And the first element of true conversion is, and it begins with, confrontation. The text says that Saul is literally knocked to the ground. Now, when you think about this, and you've probably, some of you have read this story many, many, many times, but when you think about this for a moment, and you pause, and you really think about this scripture, what is it that knocks Saul to the ground? What is it that knocks Saul to the ground? Was it the light? Was it the booming voice from heaven that knocked him to the ground? What knocked him to the ground? I believe the real reason that he was knocked to the ground was that Saul was confronted with the truth. He encountered the truth. Saul was confronted with the truth other than what he had personally chosen to believe. See, what you see here is there was a collision a collision between God and something that he didn't create. Here was a collision with God that he didn't create, a reality beyond what Saul could understand, a God that existed beyond Saul's experiences. Because up until this point, Saul had a belief in God that he constructed in his own mind, but his God was not a real God. You ask, well, how do you know this? Because if you look at verse 5, Saul asks a question. And it says in verse 5, Who are you, Lord? In other words, Saul doesn't know who this God is. He doesn't know who Jesus is. The God that Saul had was a God 
that was taught to him. A God fabricated in his own education. A God that was developed by his own mental gymnastics. So this encounter, this encounter is so opposite to what he had expected and believed in. He is completely dumbfounded and he had, when he had this face-to-face experience with the real God. He's thinking to himself, I thought I knew the real God, but you're not him. So who are you? Who are you, Lord? Explain yourself to me. Now, it's good to pause at this moment for a second, a few moments, and recognize perhaps some comparisons between Saul and us. Let me explain this. Today, people in our culture can easily construct their own God. But when you ask them, describe that God, they often describe God that fits into their understanding of how life is supposed to be or how life is supposed to work. This God that people believe in somehow neatly fits into the description of how they think life should maneuver and work. They describe a God that fits into their idea of life and how life should go or what they've experienced. In other words, God has become a God that we imagine in our hearts and in our mind. God is a God of our heart's imagination. I hear people say, I believe in a God that blank. You can put anything in there at what you want. I believe in a God that is judgmental. I believe in a God that is impersonal, is what people would say. I believe in a God who is disengaged and distant. I believe that God is authoritative and he punishes those who don't follow him properly. See, there are all kinds of personal implications and belief structures that people have of who they think God is. This personal implication to this belief system, however, is far-reaching. Let me, let me explain this for a moment. If we all simply sit around discussing and debating and talking and musing about and gathering our own personal thoughts on who God is and we somehow construct this idea of who God is and God essentially then becomes a projection of myself, of yourself. If this is who I think God is, God can easily become a figment of my imagination and my heart, my heart becomes very creative and has its own conception of who God is. But listen, the God that we create in our mind, in our imagination, is a God who cannot possibly help you. If this is a God that we have created in our own minds, He can't possibly lift you up out of your circumstances. If if God is simply a byproduct of your ideas or my ideas of who we think God is, then God cannot actually change you. God can't transform you. God cannot help you because that God is not greater than my imagination that is within my own heart. And because God is only a figment of my imagination and because God is only a construction of my own heart, what you and I need more than anything else 
is a God who is greater than me. We need a God who is greater than our imagination. We need a God who is greater than what we have imagined in our mind or in our heart. Our son does something very unique each year around the time of his birthday. What he does every year around his birthday is for one week he hikes into the wilderness alone. He removes himself from people No internet, uh, no cell phone, no media, no technology whatsoever. Alone, away, in a tent, usually by a lake in the mountains, removed completely from civilization. You don't don't know how much angst that creates in us sometimes as his mom and dad wondering, what is he doing? Where is he? Is he safe? We asked him once, why do you do this? Why do you isolate yourself like that around the time of your birthday? Every year you isolate yourself, you live in a tent, and you're away for a week. And he responded like this. He says, it's a personal yearly time of personal reflection in my life. Not only is it good to decompress from all the stress, but it's a time to evaluate my life, he says. Gain new perspective, where I've come from, where I'm going, where I, what, what's happening in my life spiritually or otherwise. It's a time of recalibration. It's what behaviors, he thinks about, what behaviors do I need to engage in? What things do I need to set aside? It's a constant realization in his life that the universe is a big universe and he's a very small part in the universe. And in the grand scheme of things, God, how do you plan on using my life in the grand scheme of your entire creation? You see, it's a time away for thoughtful introspection of life and dealing perhaps with all the insecurities, ambitions, dreams, goals, desires. But understanding there is a God who has purposefully created him for unique purpose. So here's a question. For all of us, can a God who is a construct of our imagination provide for us direction? Can a God who is a construct of our imagination enable us to move forward with confidence and faith? Can a God who is a construct of our imagination deliver us from insecurities and fears. There's a very interesting verse found in the scriptures in 1 John chapter 3, verse 20. Notice what it says. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts. And He knows everything. See, essentially, listen, this is a very important verse. Essentially, what the Bible is saying here when it says, if your hearts condemn us, it means when you... When you start to feel bad about yourself, when you begin to realize and recognize your failures, your fears, your insecurities, but then God comes and says to you, you're wrong about yourself. You're wrong about who you think you are. There is a purpose for your life. There is An understanding that you must have. You are loved. 
See, there are times, listen, there are times when our hearts condemn us. There are times in your life when your heart condemns you. But God is greater than our hearts. And He lifts us out of those feelings of condemnation. And the only way that that is possible in our lives is if we believe that God is actually greater. He's beyond the figment of our imagination. He is greater than our thoughts and imaginations. We have to believe that God is real. Not a God that I've constructed in my own mind of how things should do and be and what how it should work and what research I have done that determines what God is like. No, we have to believe that God is real. God cannot be great in your life if he is only a construct of your imagination. So what we see here is that one of the most important ingredients to a genuine conversion is that you have to believe in your heart that God is real. A God who is larger than you could ever imagine a God who is different than you could ever imagine. A God who is beyond anything that you could ever imagine. A God who is pursuing you, loving you, perhaps even more than you are seeking after Him. In fact, in Psalm 139, verse 7 and 8, notice what the Scripture says. I cannot... I can never escape from your spirit. I, I can never get away from your presence. If I go up to heaven, you are there. If I go down to the grave, you are there. See, we need to realize that God is greater. Far more challenging than we could ever imagine in our hearts because he is bigger than our hearts and than our minds. So Saul has this confrontation with the living Christ. And this confrontation shatters his understanding about God. And this God that he had constructed and believed in and been educated on, this God who does not fit into the ideas that he was taught about. See, this, here's, the, here's, the, here's the lesson that we need to learn from this, that we, sometimes, that we sometimes need the necessity of a gracious, loving God to interrupt our lives, to interrupt the trajectory of our lives in order to get our attention. This is critical for us to, to catch. We have to understand this, church, because you cannot be personally converted if you are not personally confronted by a God who wants to shatter all of your notions and preconceived ideas of who you think God should be in your life. Very important for us to understand that concept and principle. But here's a second element of a true conversion. And that is consideration. So we have confrontation where God wants to shatter our belief structures and our systems that we've kind of put in place to give us a real understanding of who He is. There's that confrontation, which leads to conversion. But there's another aspect of this, and it's consideration. 
Notice what the Bible says in Acts chapter 9, verses 6 through 9. The instruction was given to Saul, now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The men with Saul stood speechless for they heard the sound of someone's voice but saw no one. Saul picked himself up off the ground and when he opened his eyes he was blind. So his companions led him by hand to Damascus and he remained there blind for three days and he did not eat or drink. Now, many people's minds, there's this thinking that Paul's conversion, this experience was very instantaneous and very sudden, that this was a dramatic event. But if you look at these verses closely and you take time to study them, there is a strong indication that his conversion also entered into a period of consideration. I want you to see this. When Saul encounters Jesus, Jesus does not force Saul into some kind of formulaic behavior. Instead, in actuality, Jesus confronts him, and then Jesus plunges him into darkness. Saul is blinded, and he is led to Damascus. And the Bible says that during this period of blindness... He does not even eat or drink. Now, that's very significant for us to understand because in Jewish culture, when a person doesn't eat or drink, in Jewish culture, it was a time of repentance. It was a time of thoughtful deliberation. So what do you think Saul is doing during this time of blindness when he is not eating and when he is not drinking? What is it that Jesus is allowing him to experience during these days of darkness? I believe personally that during this time of darkness, Saul is sitting and thinking. He is left to himself in a room, in a house, in Damascus, and he's thinking. He's in a period of darkness to think about his confrontation with God who holds all truth outside of himself. And now Paul, Saul has to consider the implications of encountering the truth. And what Saul is likely thinking about is he's thinking about all the things that he had been educated about as a Pharisee. All of a sudden, there is this new encounter with the truth. There is this new understanding, a new reality, a, a, a meeting with the truth, Jesus, encountering Jesus, the Messiah, the resurrected Jesus, and all of his assumptions, all of his belief systems, all of his structures of who he thought God was are now turned upside down. Everything that he had learned as a student of Judaism is being readjusted in his life. And he's thinking about those scriptures from the Old Testament, the writings of the prophet, like Isaiah, who writes in Isaiah chapter 53. He was despised. Speaking of Jesus, he was despised. 
and rejected, a man of sorrows acquainted with the deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. And he was despised and we did not care. It goes on to say in verse 4, yet it was our weakness he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. Verse 5, but he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be made whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. And then verse 6, all of us like sheep have strayed away. We've left God's path to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid upon him the sins of us all. Or he's thinking about in the book of Leviticus which describes the shedding of blood from animals to cover the sins of the people. But, but now, what if the sacrifice of Jesus or the sacrifice of the animals that we read about in Leviticus was a foreshadow of pointing something into the future that was something more significant? Can you imagine in the darkness, blinded, not eating, Thinking about this incredible confrontation and encounter with the living God and processing some of the things that he was taught in Judaism and all of his learned ideas about who God was was beginning to shift. And he began to realize something of what he had been taught in the Old Testament, the Mosaic Law, was now different. You see, Saul's identity rested in the Mosaic Law. He was a scholar of the Old Testament writings. He had memorized the scriptures. He studied at the feet of the best scholars. He was zealous in making sure that the commandments of the law were followed by him and all other people. But in the darkness now... Change was happening in Saul. In fact, notice how he describes the change that transpired in his life. You see it in Romans chapter 7, verse 6. But now we've been released from the law. For we died to it and are no longer captive to its power. Now we can serve God, not in the old way of obeying the letter of the law, but in the new way of living in the Spirit. Here is a transcription of what transpired in the darkness. That's the change that was happening in Saul. And what Saul is saying here is his whole system of finding identity, that whole system of finding purpose and meaning in this moment of darkness is being stripped away from him. In the darkness, Saul dies. Not literally, but everything that he had previously based his life on had shifted. Today, most of us are not building our lives or our identity in compliance to the Mosaic law, like Saul. But today, where people are finding their worth and where they're finding their identity in 
can easily be constructed. Possessions, appearance, status in the community. We find identity in our jobs, maybe even our education. We find our identity in our performance. Students put all their identity into having good grades. Or how about the identity of being right all the time? And we feel good about ourselves because these things, sometimes the very best thing, we, we feel good about who we are and what we do and how we become, but yet sometimes the very best thing that God can do for us is to let all these things that identify us begin to unravel in our lives. Because eventually, listen, listen, eventually in all of our lives, things will unravel. There will be a crisis that we will experience. There will be some kind of collapse that happens. There will be circumstances that will cause all, all of us to realize that the things that we've put our trust in, the things that cause us to identify with us, really has no meaning in the long run. We begin to discover, we will begin to discover in our moments of darkness that there is an emptiness to the things that we put our trust in, the possessions that we have. There's an emptiness in those things. See, all of us at some point in our lives will have to face who we really are. And this, and this is what happens to Saul in his darkness. He's been confronted and he's taking inventory of his understanding of who God is. He's in, taking inventory of an understanding of what his life is all about. I like what John Bunyan wrote. He said these words, conversion is not the smooth, easygoing process some seem to think. It's a wounding work, the breaking of hearts, but without wounding, there is no saving. There's a con confrontation. There is also consideration. And our response in those moments when we are confronted and when we have opportunity to consider will make a difference in your world and my world. Now let me conclude. When we talk about conversion... This is not a once-and-done experience. Now, some of you may say, well, I was converted 10, 15, 25 years ago. Yes, that was a great moment and a great time. And yes, we had an encounter with God. I, had, I can take you to the place where I encountered God, and I can take you to the place where my life was literally changed because I had a confrontation with God. Yes, there was a direct moment that happened in my life where I can say, I was converted. But can I tell you that in all of our lives, we are too broken as human beings and we have too much capability and capacity to build idols within our own heart that we need multiple conversion experiences, multiple encounters with God, multiple times of where we consider the implications of our lives in order for us to move forward. If we open our lives up to God, 
who is bigger than our heart's imagination, then we will experience thousands of little conversions throughout our lifetime. Times when God comes into your life and he begins to show you that he is bigger and different. Times in our life where God maybe challenges us, where we can find new meaning and new purpose, and where he challenges us by his Holy Spirit to change certain areas and matters in our life, where he challenges us that our belief systems that we have accumulated are not the belief systems that align themselves to the scriptures. There are moments when God challenges our lives lives and those are the moments where we need to look at and say is he wanting to convert me to something different in my life God wants us if you are a follower of Jesus Christ God wants us to live as converted people as faith filled people faith filled people who look to the future with anticipation to what God is going to do in the days ahead. Be willing to open, be willing to be open, be willing to change and evaluate your life. What is God doing in these moments right now that are ahead of us and are we willing to step out and follow Him and walk in faith? Because faith-filled people ask this, God, what are you doing in my life right now? If you're a person of faith, you're asking yourself, God, what are you doing in my life? Even in the midst of a pandemic, when we can't gather as we normally should, God, what is it in the spirit? Give me a vision of what you are doing in the world right now that, that is dynamic for the church of Jesus Christ. What are you doing in my life right now as I'm patiently waiting, as I'm praying to, to move out of this pandemic? God, what, what are you going to do in my life once we get to the other side? See, people of faith are asking and they're looking to a future, anticipating, God, how is my purpose going to be fulfilled in the future? God, what is the purpose and what, is you, what are you going to fulfill in the church in the future? See, everything that we see in Acts chapter 9, this conversion story is a call for us to be faith-filled people who embrace a God who is larger than you could ever imagine. And to be so filled with faith for a more dynamic future, he wants to do incredible things. But in order for us to experience what God wants to do through us, are you going to be open to a deconstruction of some ideas? Are you going to be open to the openness of what God wants to do by His Holy Spirit? Are you going to be open to change that God may be bringing our way in order to make us more dynamic as an individual and as a church? I want to close with three questions for you. As you are watching, and as you are sitting here in this sanctuary, if you're watching by your television or a device of technology, here are three questions. Let me leave you with these. What is God calling in your life right now to reconsider? How is God confronting you today? That's the second question. 
And where are you going to go from here? Having encountered God, having been converted, having listened to the voice of the Spirit, where are you going to go from here? Can I submit to you that the best thing that you and I can say right now is to say yes to Jesus and what he wants to do in your life, whatever that is. Where you say, yes, Lord, I'm available. And like, like Saul, Jesus is calling your name and my name today. He wants our attention because he wants to show you some things about who he is and what he can do in your life so that you can walk into a better future. So are you willing to be converted today? Are you willing to experience a conversion today towards a better future in Jesus Christ? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we're so humbled that you would even encounter us, that you would be so willing to forgive us. We're humbled by the fact that your only begotten Son came and died on the cross of Calvary for my sins, for our sins. God, we're humbled and we're so appreciative of our encounter of conversion in our lives. And Lord, as we ponder the truth of this message and as we ponder the truth of who you are in us, may we live our lives in such a way that we embrace the move of your Spirit, wherever that is, however that takes place, and that we follow you for a glorious future in the name of Jesus Christ. Whatever darkness we may be experiencing right now, God, take those moments of darkness in our lives and allow those moments to change us. Convert us, O oh God. Challenge us so that we may consider you to be the Lord of our lives who moves us forward in a new dimension. I pray this in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. May we encounter him today in a fresh and powerful way. And all of God's people said, amen and amen, amen. Thank you for joining us. We'll be here again next week, same time, 1030 on Sunday morning. We hope that you can join us, whether in person or online, whatever you feel comfortable with. But we encourage you, if you're double vaccinated, to come and participate in our church services in a live event. God bless you. Have a great weekend and enjoy the long weekend next week. But don't forget our services, 1030 next Sunday. God bless you. Have a great week. Amen.